The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Once more onto the breach, dear friends, once more, we'll close the wall up with our English dead. In peace. There's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. Stiffen the sinews. Summon up the blood. Disguise fair nature with hard, favoured rage. Now, set the teeth and stretch the nostril wide. Hold hard the breath and bend up every spirit to his full height. On! On, you noblest English! Dishonour not your mothers. Now attest that those whom you called fathers did beget you. Be copy now to men of grosser blood and teach them how to war. And you, good yeoman, whose limbs were made in England. Show us here the metal of your posture. Let us swear that you are worth your breeding, which I doubt not. For there is none of you so mean and base that hath not noble luster in your eyes. I see you stand like greyhounds in the slips, straining upon the start. The game's afoot. Follow your spirit. And upon this charge, cry God for Harry... England and St. George! Mm, that's Tom Hiddleston in Shakespeare's Henry V. Those rousing lines of poetry paint a picture of courage and sacrifice in the midst of battle. Their intention? To inspire soldiers, to brace them for the hardships and dangers that they may face. Soldiers need that inspiration. We understand that part of being a human being well enough, the part that might need to summon forth internal strength and courage and fortitude, the side of us that might waver at the very moment when to waver might mean that all will be lost. We appeal to their sense of honor or duty or patriotism or mission or glory or camaraderie. We know that soldiers need this and we know that poetry and literature can deliver it. There's a place for literature in the education of a soldier. But what about literature that expresses doubts about war, or fears, or its brutality? Should that be a part of the curriculum as well? And what about literature that on its surface has nothing to do with the battlefield? Where is the value in that for a soldier? One thing seems clear. How a society educates its soldiers tells us something fundamental about the values of that society. And when it comes to the role of literature in a soldier's education, we learn two things. We see how we as a society think of them as individuals, and we see a reflection of what we think literature can do and should do. We'll be talking about those issues with an expert a professor at the United States Military Academy, today on the History of Literature. (laughs) 
Okay, here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the show. We have a fascinating show today. I did not know what to expect. I had a lot of preconceived notions about West Point, where some of the finest minds in America go to be trained to become officers in the United States Army. I had some experience from afar, friends, people I knew who had gone there. I had heard some anecdotes. I knew they got a first-rate education, but I had never before heard about the literature that they were taught when they were there. Think of what the education of a soldier tells us about that culture. I've been thinking a lot about that since we started talking with our guest today, and I started reading her books and trying to think through some of these issues. When I went to college, we were at the tail end of the Cold War. There was still a lot of thinking about America and the Soviet Union. <laughs> Sorry, the Soviet Union, the different styles of the two, the approaches to being an individual. Many papers and conferences address this question. Is America an Athens? And is the Soviet Union a Sparta? America, like Athens, where the soldiers were raised at home, taught a wide range of subjects, maybe went to college, maybe at least went to high school in a normal setting. Not a professional or a mercenary military. In America, they were prided for their ability to not only follow orders, but to think for themselves, to be an individual within the collective. Was that better than a Spartan education with a strong, pragmatic objective to raise soldiers for the purposes of war? What role did learning philosophy or history or poetry have in a soldier's mind? Would it confuse them, make them weak, less focused, less likely to follow orders in a hierarchical structure? On the other hand, what are we hoping to generate with our military machines or well-rounded individuals capable of making their own decisions if need be and possessed with the tools to think critically and to understand others, whether it's those fighting next to them, those above them or below them, foreign allies or the enemy? And what about after war? Do we expect our soldiers to, our soldiers and officers, do we expect them to retire when they're done? Just live quietly somewhere or return to our society, become the leaders, blend into the fabric of our society? It's not just Athens and Sparta or America and the Soviet Union of the Cold War. These are questions that Rome wrestled with and the British Empire and the samurai warriors of Tokugawa, Japan, and the Prussian armies of Frederick the Great. The samurais were expected to learn poetry and Zen Buddhism, and they became not just soldiers, but sophisticated and elite leaders in society, highly refined and cultured with literature playing a fundamental role. Frederick the Great, we learn, believed in instructing the soldiers in all literature, all philosophy, and many of the sciences. 
Some observers at the time objected, viewing it as unnecessary and perhaps not sufficiently recognizing that some individuals may not have a natural aptitude for those subjects. Our guest today, Professor Elizabeth Samet, has been thinking about these issues for years. She's been a professor of English, teaching cadets for a long time, and she's written a book called Soldier's Heart, Reading Literature Through Peace and War at West Point. I learned a lot from her book and from our conversation. I hope you enjoy it. One note before we begin, Professor Samet asked me to emphasize that the views expressed in this interview are Samet's own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Professor Elizabeth Samet, talking about teaching literature to soldiers after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Elizabeth Samet, professor of English and author of several books about literature and the teaching of literature, including Soldier's Heart, Reading Literature Through Peace and War at West Point. Professor Samet, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Thank you so much. Very pleased to be with you. So let's start with how you got to where you are. Uh, you got a BA at Harvard and a PhD at Yale. You were literature all the way, and then you wound up as a professor at West Point. How did you end up getting that job? Well, I have a short answer and a long answer. The okay. short answer is uh, usually Ulysses S. Grant and my father. Ah. Um, two people not often put in the same <laughs> sentence. <laughs> But I uh, started reading Grant's memoirs, which I'm actually currently finishing an edition of right now. And he talks, among other things, among many other things, about his time at West Point mm. and how much he hated and loved it both together, which I think is a, is not unusual among West Point graduates. Um, there's a certain ambivalence because it's very difficult mm -hmm. and uh, it it 
it's a place where you have to sort of reinvent yourself and uh, reimagine yourself yeah. in your transformation from civilian to soldier. But it's also a place that taught him a great deal and that I think he looked back fondly on uh, in his later years. And certainly he saw the value um, of his education. And although he never could have predicted this, it taught him a lot about the classmates and other fellow cadets against whom he would end up fighting in the Civil War. And that was mm. a great tactical and strategic value to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other part of my answer, my father uh, served in the Army Air Corps during World War II. So I grew up uh, trying to cajole him to tell me stories about that time. He served uh, in India. He did air traffic control. And uh, I used to ask for stories. And we used to uh, watch World War II movies together when I was growing up. And I think that he's a little older than some of my peers' parents, and so I perhaps grew up with a slightly different attitude toward military culture, mm. um, even though his army was obviously very different from, from this, and he was not a professional soldier, but uh, just a, a citizen soldier during the uh, war. Mm-hmm. And I know some people, you mentioned in your book, some people are surprised to hear that you yourself uh, are a civilian. How many faculty members at West Point have military experience? So we actually have a sizable minority, I guess, of um, civilian professors. Mm-hmm. We have about a little over 20%, and uh, that's been true for a while now. Mm-hmm. And some of those, some smaller subset of those have military experience, but most of them are civilians. Right. And uh, that's a marked change from the experience of the graduates of West Point for much of its history. There were uh, always have been a few civilian professors. There was a drawing master, for example, Robert Weir, during the 19th century. There have been other uh, physical education professors, language professors, I believe. But um, for the most part, the the large influx of civilian professors happened in the mid-90s. So Mm. many graduates of the institution had a completely different experience than the one they get today. Right. And you yourself have been there for about 20 years? That's right, since 1997. Right. Okay, so I'm building up to my questions about literature and the cadets, which is uh, where I want to go with this. But first, let's talk about uh, what you teach and just get some of the courses, just so we get sort of a, a sense of the different courses that you might teach as a professor of English at West Point. Sure. So I teach in both our core curriculum program and our electives program. We have a full-fledged English major, which is akin to that of English majors at civilian schools. Mm-hmm. For many years, I well, for several years, I taught the uh, freshman literature course, which is a core course taken by all 1,100 cadets mm. and taught by a staff of about 20 to 25 faculty members. And that was really uh, one of the great, has been one of the great joys of my time at West Point was teaching that class. Right. And uh, we did everything from contemporary poetry and prose to Shakespeare. Part of the course was a performance of a Shakespeare monologue, and we would invite Uh, still do invite actor educators from the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival to come run our freshman, our whole freshman class, we call them plebes, through an acting workshop, an improv workshop. And then we have a competition 
where the finalists perform in front of the the West Point community on a special day for projects in the spring, which we just had uh, last week. And there's always been a component of the course where cadets recite poetry, but I sort of changed it in the instead of reciting many poems throughout the semester and then promptly forgetting them, I wanted them to own a more substantive piece of language. So we focused on uh, monologues from Shakespeare. Mm. And uh, it's a great treat to see the, the freshmen perform those. And I always think there is uh, an interesting and important uh, preparation that acting gives to them. They don't necessarily think about it that way, but uh, the whole sense of trust and reciprocity and all of the things that, that acting requires uh, mm. really, I think, stand them in good stead uh, as members of, of military units as well. Right. So who sets the curriculum for that? Is that something that's determined by senior administrative staff, or is it the English department? Or No, the uh, overall curriculum, of course, is set by um, various, the curriculum committee and, and in terms of the, the nature of the courses. In fact, we've just undergone another uh, curriculum modification. So those that works through um, various groups the way curriculum change does at other universities and colleges. But the uh, actual course content is determined by the course director. Hmm. So I, I designed the the course when I was the director and then passed it along to someone else. So we have some constants that the, the presence of Shakespeare in the course has been something of long standing. Um, but the themes and the area of focus and the different genres treated have changed uh, over the years. The, the, the point, though, the goal of the course is to introduce students to a variety of genres uh, and to get them to think about literary analysis and the close reading of language and the marshalling of evidence in, in the service of, of larger arguments. Right. Now, that sounds almost like what you might say if you were just at any university. How much of your consideration has to be given to, you know, not just these are college-level students, but these are college-level uh, soldiers or future soldiers? So the that dynamic is a is an interesting one. It's one that I have thought about a great deal during my time there. It's mm. one that I think the institution thinks about all the time as yeah. it uh, adapts itself to new to new uh, challenges and new eras. Mm -hmm. um, all of the students, as you suggest, all of the students uh, go on to military service. They are commissioned as second lieutenants and serve a minimum of five years in the Army. Some get out right away. Some might stay for a, a career of 30 years or more. Um, and the the balance there is a tricky one. I think that we owe it to them in an English course to give them an English course that they would get if they were civilian students anywhere else, mm. that the academic the integrity of the academic program and the integrity of the experience in the classroom is of vital importance. They get a great deal of training in the summer and throughout the year in military tactics and, and other considerations and leadership. And so the role of the teacher in the classroom, particularly the civilian, I mean, and this is really true for anyone, civilian or military teaching in a discipline, is to teach the, the fundamentals of the discipline. Mm. And I think where the military context comes in is often in unexpected ways. And right. so if we are, and this happened in especially 
when the war began, uh, and there was a completely different context for our understanding of fundamental human truths, of life and death, of uh, loyalty and trust, and all sorts of issues, violence. And so there were times when the discussion would take a different turn as a result of the news or as a result of their own thinking about their futures. Mm. And so it isn't that the curriculum necessarily changed, but the ambiance of the classroom and the context would change. So sometimes the conversation would take a very different direction. If we were dealing, for example, with a text about soldiers or about violence or a text about other issues that are related that have nothing explicit, no explicit connection to war, but necessarily are about fundamental human interactions, human behavior in desperate circumstances, sometimes the connection uh, would be clear in their minds and it would be an opportunity to meditate on their longer time horizon and on their own commitments and on the nature of their service. So mm-hmm. I, I think that most of the time, if you were just listening into our classroom and you didn't see the uniforms, uh, you might think that it was it could have been a class anywhere, but then sometimes we'll take a real U-turn because a poem that depicts a war, a scene from war, or um, a poem that depicts some element of camaraderie or friendship uh, has for them a very different sense, and so the conversation will go in different directions. Mm. Yeah, it seems, as I was trying to think through this and imagine what it must be like for you, it seems as if there would be, you know, three different schools of thought for what would be most important to the students that literature could give them. And on the one hand, these are young individuals who are facing battle in the future, and they need to be courageous, they need to be patriotic, they need to be able to to be brave in the face of death, or to be able to deal quickly with the loss of people close to them, and they need to be able to follow orders. And th- there must be a school of thought that thinks let's use literature to help train them to be good at what we're training them to do. Is that something that you feel an obligation toward or that others at West Point are trying to, you know, foster in the English department? Well, I think that, and I and I go back to a conversation I had a, a long time ago with a, a colleague of mine who was a, a colonel uh, who had seen combat uh, and taught at West Point for many years, taught English, and really regarded it as his, as his responsibility to teach all aspects of war. Mm. So to teach only patriotic or jingoistic poetry, for example, as opposed to teaching something like Wilfred Owen as well, right. he thought really would be dishonest, um, doing a disservice, mm-hmm. and that his obligation was to teach all facets of war, all aspects of war. And that's really what we owe to those students who have committed to serve. And um, I have, in my own challenge of wrestling with that as a civilian, knowing that I will not face the particular challenges they will, I, I was... I felt much better after having that conversation with him. My own instinct was to teach all of those texts uh, because I think that is a is the honest thing to do, and yet there's always a when you're entering a new culture, there's always a sense of trepidation and what are your obligations, and um, he right. really regarded it as his duty uh, to to teach all all aspects, all attitudes yeah. uh, toward toward war and violence, and I I've long subscribed to that as well. 
Yeah, because the other schools of thought that I was thinking of, I mean, on the you know, in addition to wanting uh, individuals to be ready to be courageous and and face things with courage, we also want soldiers and officers who understand human beings and whether that's the the people that they're asked to lead or foreign allies or local populations. And it seems as if empathy and understanding could be uh, of great strategic importance. I think it is. I think if it's it's of enormous value. And I also think that sometimes I think of our job as preparing them to be unprepared, mm. preparing them for the unexpected, knowing mm-hmm. that I can't prepare them for everything they'll face. Instead, trying to inculcate habits of mind, flexibility, resilience, uh, things and, and empathy that will help them when they confront something unprecedented, something unexpected. And I often think of my role as helping them to confront difficult things now, mm-hmm. because I don't, in, in the comfort, the relative comfort of the classroom, right. it's a safe place in that sense. And I would rather have them confront difficult truths now than mm-hmm. to confront them for the first time in exigent circumstances, right. because they will be leading other people. And so I want them to be challenged. I want them to be able to to imagine themselves plunged into ambiguous circumstances and to work that out for themselves before they're in an emergency. And they won't have that luxury. Right. And to help them to be good, not just at the job of soldiering, but to be well-rounded enough and balanced enough and have the 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 equipment that they need in order to uh, cope with difficult situations or, you know, have the sort of inner strength as well. Right. And I think, although this term has been lost because of the all-volunteer force and the rise of a professional military with a rhetoric of of professionalism, I think the whole notion of the citizen-soldier has always been what makes our army different. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I don't want them to lose that. It's Washington right. who says that he, he doesn't... He didn't lay aside the citizen when he became a soldier, and I think that they don't either, although sometimes they might imagine themselves to do. I think it's very dangerous if they if they think they had no longer have any connection uh, to citizenship and to and to civilians. And so I like to think that becoming a soldier is an addition and does require obviously certain sacrifices and a certain transformation. but i I think it would be very dangerous to lay aside or to forget that core self with which one comes to West Point in the first place. I think it's very dangerous because one day they'll take the uniform off yeah. and there has to be something left. There has to be something there if they're to live their lives with meaning right. and some sense of fulfillment. Right. We want them to to live and love and raise children and be fit back into the fabric of society and and all of those things, which it seems like having some grounding in literature could help prepare them for, you know, when, as you say, when they take the uniform off. Right. So do the students ever push back? Do you ever get first-year students? I know when I used to teach, 
first year students uh, in a required literature course, they were often, you know, even the even the non-soldier students would often say, well, how is this relevant for me? How is this going to help me in my life? I want to be uh, I want to go into business or I want to be an accountant. I can see why I need to read and write, but, you know, I don't need to read and write poetry, for example. Do you ever get pushback where people say, look, you maybe don't understand what I'm what my career is going to be about, but why do I have to read Shakespeare? I, there's always a student who has a very utilitarian approach to yeah. <laughs> to academic work and says pretty much in response to anything, how's this going to help me become a lieutenant? Right. But I don't get it a, a lot. I've also been there a long time, so I, I know I've made it my business to, to, to try to understand their roles and their responsibilities and the career they've chosen. And I don't like to, I, and this is what I always tell new teachers, never teach from the defensive. If you believe in the worth of your discipline and have a passion for that discipline, communicate that passion. Will you, will you get everyone in the classroom to, to come along? No, but that's an unreasonable expectation. And so I present my own belief in the worth of the material and invite them in. And I, I think that, I, and I don't make apologies for it. And I tell them how it will help them. And I tell them the ways that, you know, I don't know always. That's the other thing about mm. literature. I don't always know the ways in which it will help them. And right. so I'm often surprised the way it helps me in my own life. And so I, I share with that with them as well. And I think certainly with first-year students, I, I think they they just want to come along for the ride. Um, and they want to participate in the in the seminar, in the discussion, and learn new things. And I, I also think there is... I always build in an opportunity for play of a kind, adult sort of imagination and, and really mm. pushing them to think about uh, playing with language and uh, thinking about the ways in which their uh, imagination uh, can help them to solve problems as yeah. well. So to sort of think about everything from writing poems to uh, making short films and, and things like that, a real play of the creative Im imagination, um, because I think that too will, will help them and stand them in good stead to um, imagine the things that they, that they can't see. Yeah. And I, my guess is that a lot of them, they're, they're absorbing this structured life that's, that's being imposed on them from all sides. And they probably, are really appreciative of having a, a chance to let their mind go in a different direction and and use English and literature as a way to uh, kind of keep alive uh, a bit of creativity in their thinking and their thoughts, even as they're living a sort of regimented life for the first time. That, that's my hope. And, and there's also the, the weird surprise for them, particularly because it has a history as a school for engineers, that Sometimes students come to literature classes or writing classes and think there's no structure at all, that it's really any, it means anything you want it to mean. Right. And creativity has uh, no rules, no, no uh, sense of, right. uh, of um, a kind of structure or process. And yeah. what surprises them is that imagination and successful creativity requires a great deal of discipline. Hmm. And I think that that is also uh, a welcome surprise for them, that there are other professions and other disciplines. And that's what the, that's where the acting comes in when they see the actors and they see the kind of discipline it takes. I think they're often surprised 
Mm. because they see it as a sort of, oh, it's fun and games, it's a free-for-all, there doesn't seem to be a lot of work involved. And then they realize that a lot of different professions have a great deal of discipline, Mm. uh, even though they don't talk about it perhaps in quite the same way that a military culture does. Right. Are there any particular works or authors that you've found uh, that surprised you at at how well? Do you have any go-to people that you know are going to be very popular? Uh, Sometimes that changes. I notice that I can't assume that students in high school will have read certain texts. Mm. There was a time I could assume, for example, that everyone had read Romeo and Juliet. I can't assume that anymore. That everyone had read certain novels, and I can't assume that anymore. And so that sort of changed in some ways my my go-to texts. But I, I have... Nevertheless, some constants that I've I've stuck with. Um, I I like to choose texts that show people undergoing some kind of transformation. So I mm. often will teach Dickens' Great Expectations to mm-hmm. my freshmen because the character Pip's not wholly successful transformation into being a gentleman involves everything from a new uniform, a new suit of clothes to what he regards as a completely new personality. And he makes the great error of trying to leave everyone in his earlier life behind, and it's a miserable failure for him. And so thinking about failed transformation in that way is, I think, very important for them. So I've taught that um, many times to plebes. I've recently been teaching another text that I'm very excited about and that the cadets really seem to get a lot out of, which is um, Ferdowsi Shanameh. Hmm. the great Persian epic. And I don't teach the whole thing, but I I teach... uh, Dick Davis has a wonderful, fairly new translation that I use. And I uh, teach the parts on the great champion, Rustam, and I teach the parts on Alexander the Great. And uh, there's such a... It's such a wonderfully rich and evocative poem that deals Hmm. with a completely different culture, which I think is very important for them to think about, but also deals with questions of heroism and loyalty and friendship and vengeance and all sorts of issues which are important to our own culture as well. And and to see how the characters in this poem navigate that is is fascinating. And to mm. see the reasons why characters in that poem go to war and the ways in which their counselors caution them against going to war, especially uh, being too concerned about one's honor, overly concerned uh, about one's personal honor, and sometimes sacrificing others in order to preserve one's honor and the dangers of that. Right. So there's an interesting, an interesting kind of, I mean, if you sort of think of a, of a, maybe a, an older um, sense of, of, of honor in the, in the West in terms of dueling and sort of things like that, which were sort of very personal honor that could sort of, um, that didn't really, that it wasn't an honor that was preserved for the benefit of society or for anyone else, but it's just kind of a being jealous of one's personal reputation and honor and sometimes sacrificing others to it, which can be a very dangerous thing. Right. And then for once you get into the upper level courses for students who choose to be English majors, what types of courses do you teach? And are there any uh, particular works that you think are kind of specific to West Point? 
Uh, sure. Well, the, the Shana Ma I've actually taught. I haven't taught to freshmen yet. I have taught it in uh, a world literature course, literature and translation course that we have in our department. And last year I taught it in our core introductory course for our English majors. So I focused that course on, on what I called figures of the past. And I wanted everyone to think about the ways in which literature represents the past hmm. and represents history. So we looked at the Shana Ma. We looked at the poetry of Elizabeth Bishop. We spent a great deal of time on that and thinking about her rendering of both time and space, of oh. geography and of history. And I uh, had them do their major paper on Bishop as well and to sort of sit with her poetry for much of the semester and to begin to, as it's an introductory course that introduces them to the discipline, sort of learning how to how to close read and then also learning how to incorporate context and how to in incorporate literary criticism and theory and other elements. And her poetry is so fascinating to me. And for a long time it, it has been, and just to see the sort of, we look, tried, I tried to look at the arc of the whole career and to see the many ways in which her poetry uh, developed over time. Mm. And uh, so that was, that was uh, last year's course, and then I will probably do that again in the fall, look at Bishop again and, and use the Sean M.A. And uh, we also looked, in that class, we looked at uh, Thomas Hardy's Mayor of Casterbridge oh. to, to think about the ways the past, both personal past, how, how you can't leave your personal past behind sometimes, you can't transcend it, and also because that novel has such a rich evocation of uh, Roman Britain and this sense of the ghosts of historical pasts. Mm. Do you teach any film? I do. In fact, I'm teaching a film class right now. I've taught for several years a course on Hollywood cinema, the golden age of Hollywood cinema. Oh. And what themes do you bring out of that? Well, that's varied over the years, but one of the constants is the sense in which American cinema is really a product in large part of emigrates from Europe and the ways in which those various uh, immigrants changed uh, the landscape of film, even though there were sort of practitioners who were here, the, these waves of European immigration uh, in the interwar period and uh, how European filmmakers brought their sensibilities to the United States so that films, genres we think about as uniquely American, like film noir, which of course has a French name, <laughs> um, was also heavily influenced by German filmmakers. And so we, we sort of trace the arc from German expressionism to the Hollywood period. And then I usually end with a, a French film because the French are, the French took our art form more seriously than we did uh, initially. Mm -hmm. So it's fun to just sort of see that what we mean when we say Hollywood cinema or American cinema is really a a much more complicated uh, amalgamation yeah. of cultures. Oh. Okay, so I have three questions to finish things up. Sure. My first one is, what have you learned about your students in the years that you've been teaching? Wow, that's a hard question. I think it changes all the time. Mm. I think maybe one of the things that I've learned is that in some ways they're not very different from their peers at other institutions mm -hmm. in that they're, they, when they start, they're 18, uh, they're immature in many ways, quite mature, more mature than I was at that age in other ways. Mm -hmm. They 
come to West Point for a variety of reasons, although I think they all share a fundamental desire to serve in some capacity. Mm-hmm. And they're, those who stay, I think, the reasons that they come to West Point are not necessarily the reasons they stay. Mm-hmm. So that they acquire a more sophisticated and a more complicated sense of purpose the longer they're there. And I think the most successful cadets and those who have the most fulfilling military careers, that sense of an evolving, maturing relationship to their profession has already begun while they're cadets. Hmm. Right. And so that's that's one of the things that I've watched over the years. Yeah. Maybe the, the other another thing that I've that I've noted increasingly, and I think this is not unique at all to the institution where I teach is the ways in which technology has transformed the way people, I don't think it's transformed the way people can learn things, but it's, it's transformed the way that the assumptions that we make, that they make about the classroom, that I make about them. So sometimes I think that I'm sort of working against the grain sometimes that they don't, I mean, people tell educators constantly that students learn a particular way and that technology has made them better at certain things. But I, I think that it, it's made all of us worse in certain respects. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we should allow certain attributes to atrophy because I think we still need them. So I'm, I'm a constant, constantly focusing on deep attention and mm. patience. And those are really hard things. Right. And uh, then, so I, yeah. Oh, uh, I was just going to say another change, which you you've been in a position to witness. I don't know how dramatic it's been, but it's kind of astonishing to me to think that we are now so far away from nine eleven that the students who are who are coming in your classroom uh, would have no real memory of it. Whereas when you were first teaching, you you were there when it happened, and then you saw students who would have been old enough to really register a before and after. Have you seen a difference as we've become kind of this nation where the the generation has grown up with a kind of focus on terrorism? Yes, I think for so when I first got there, um, obviously it was before before 9-11. And then those classes that were at West Point during that period and the ways in which they saw their lives change. They didn't quite know how they would change, but they knew that a that a major shift had occurred. And mm. then, of course, in a few years, it became quite obvious. And then yeah. there was a long period there where they had a very clear understanding of what their careers would look like. And for several years, they were exactly right. So that they would graduate from West Point and within a year they would be platoon leaders and they would be fighting in Iraq or Afghanistan. Hmm. And they they knew that as cadets, it drove how they thought of themselves and how they thought of their futures. And in the vast majority of cases, they were exactly right. And then that changed, but the thinking didn't change. So the assumption was, that's what I'm going to do. But then it wasn't always true. And so then part of my challenge became... How do you think about meaningful service if that's not your fate mm. in in a year? Because of course, armies derive. I mean, they, they train them. They train 
they don't want war, but they train for war. And so it is this uh, overwhelming sense of responsibility and of urgency. And absent that urgency, how do you create a life of meaningful service? Right. If you're not going to be a small unit leader in combat, what, what is it that you, that you do instead? And how can that still be vitally important? Right. And so that's been a change. And then my students, I would say, in the last few years are fond of calling themselves the post-9-11, post-9-11 generation or post-9-11 yeah. sensibility. And I'm not always sure what that means because I do think the event itself has receded in the memory. And I also think that all of the, the rhythms of life and these questions of security that you and I have had to get used to, they have grown up with. Right. And so they don't necessarily uh, see their world the same way we might. And some of the things that still we probably are uncomfortable with, uh, the changes that we're uncomfortable with, they just have accepted as part of their lives. And so it's very interesting to be able to, to talk to them about pre-9-11 history and what has changed and what hasn't and what their roles might be in the future. Boy, and those examples that you gave as you were kind of talking through the different waves of students and what they could expect and not expect really kind of emphasizes something you said at the very beginning, which was you have to, you know, you're using literature to help them prepare for the unexpected. Um, right. You could imagine how difficult it would be for someone who's there and they think their career path is going to go one way and then to find out it's going to go a completely different way and it's all going to change dramatically and, and without any forewarning. Right. And, and I've seen that crisis happen in much more mature officers, and mm. I don't want my students to have to face that for the first time uh, before they after they graduate. I want them to be able to do it at West Point, where they can talk about it and figure it out, and think about it and build up that um, determination and sense of adaptability, so that when that moment does happen, and it will happen. Um, they're able to confront it and grapple with the, the particular challenges that they didn't anticipate. Right. Okay. Question number two. What have you learned about yourself as a teacher? That maybe is even harder than the first question. Uh, <laughs> I, I've learned that the same thing never works twice. Mm. That's something I oh. tell, talk, talk <laughs> to our new faculty about sometimes yeah. that you devise this great plan and it works like a charm and you think I will always do that and it will yep. always work and it's a winner and yep. you try it again and it falls completely flat and, and you so think you oh really... this is easy because I don't have to prep again because it all worked <laughs> out and, and by the time I've done this three or four years I'll be on autopilot and it doesn't work that way <laughs> right. so there's a you always have to reinvent and the other thing I think is that you have to navigate this line between education. So, so that for, for my military colleagues, they come from a training environment mm -hmm. and they need to figure, and they're excellent trainers, and then they need to figure out how to be educators. And education doesn't always have a script in the same way that a training session mm, would. And that's right. a really hard thing. And so, in talking about teaching there, I've talked a lot about that and then reflected on my own practice within the classroom. And you have to you have to sort of trust your students and yourself in the sense that you certainly have a plan, but you have to be willing to, to let it 
to let things move in unexpected directions. And so I've, over the years, that's become, I've become more comfortable with that. And I, I know the things that I, I know the targets that I have to, to hit in class. I know the information I have to convey, but it doesn't always, it's not always conveyed in the same order and it's not always conveyed at the same pace. And mm-hmm. so you really have to, to pay attention to that. And I've learned that the, I think the most important skill a teacher can have is to be a good listener. Hmm. Yeah. And that's, that is really hard to do when you're in your head and you're thinking, okay, I have to do this and I have to do that. And what did that, what, you know, what do I do next? And I only have this much time left. You really just have to listen to whatever it is your students are, are saying at the time. And that will actually guide all the rest of it. Right. Because if you're, if your goal is not just, I mean, I've seen professors who have tried to, for whatever reason, they probably had this same kind of uh, frustration with the training versus education, or or they were frustrated by having to grade and, and assign grades to something that can be kind of a creative endeavor. And so they've they turned their courses into small, discrete tasks and and achievable goals. And, you know, let's do a plot summaries for these five books, and then let's do character descriptions for these five books. And they sort of try to march students through, which which really doesn't work in college. I mean, that's it's really kind of defeats the purpose of what we're trying to mold college-age minds into being and becoming. I think it it's harder because you have to be on your toes the whole time. Mm-hmm. You have to be attuned at every minute to, to what's happening in the classroom rather than having your script. Yeah. And but it, I think it's the only way, and you know, maybe it, it risks failure in some senses. In some hours, you don't get done what you think you ought to have done. But I think the payoff in those moments when it really works is absolutely worth it, and it gives, I think, students a sense of responsibility that they wouldn't otherwise have. Right. If they know that you're listening to what they say, and that you'll remember it maybe from one class to the next and that it somehow shapes the direction of the course, (laughs) then I think they become more thoughtful about their contributions. And I think they prepare with greater diligence. And again, you have to be willing, I think, in those cases. I I, I talk about this when I I have uh, colleagues sometimes at West Point and elsewhere who who are big believers in reading quizzes and things like that. And I, Mm -hmm. and I resist those. And I get the response, well, what about if the students don't read? And I say, well, if you create the kind of classroom where everyone wants to play and they know that to play, they have to be prepared, the vast majority will prepare. Because no one really wants to sit there for however long the class is and not be able to say anything. Right. No one really wants to be caught out in that way. Right. It's pretty boring if you don't know what everyone else is talking about and and you can't participate. Uh, Okay. Question number three. What have you learned about literature? What it can do, what it can't do, what it's good for, what it's not as good at? Well, for me, it's best at, and this will echo the the themes we've been talking about throughout our conversation, best at imagining different situations, at plunging you into unfamiliar territory, into a landscape where sometimes the signposts and the evidence and the uh, clarity of things is not forthcoming and you really have to work to understand. And I think that that's 
really the way life is. I think that's really the way when, if, if and when my students find themselves in difficult situations, those are the kinds of environments that they'll have to work with, where everything is not quite as it seems. And where there are some things that are sometimes lost in translation, things that they have to do the work of interpretation to figure out. And I think that's the skill that literature provides. The question of empathy is an interesting one, because there are all sorts of studies that suggest that literature and the arts, although we like to think they increase empathy, might not. And so I'm less confident about that. Mm. But I do think... It's useful in confronting people with difference and in confronting them with the reality that not everyone thinks the way they do. Not everyone has the same expectations that they do. Not everyone reads the world the same way they do. Mm -hmm. And I think an understanding of that is vital. Now, whether as a result of that you are awakened into a new sense of empathy and understanding, I think that depends and varies according to the reader. But I think at least understanding that those contrary views are out there and that you can't assume that people will interpret the world the way you do is a really essential skill. And I think that it is something that literature offers in a way that other disciplines might not. Some do, and it depends on the moment, but I think literature consistently offers us that. And I think that's why the new buzzword among my students is this word relatable, mm. which I can't stand. Um, <laughs> if literature's job is only to provide us with characters with whom we can relate, and I'm still not sure quite what that means, but then I think it's a miserable failure. Right. But if instead it give, it confronts us with strangers in a strange land, then I think it's worthwhile. Mm, a beautiful answer. Professor Elizabeth Salmond, thank you so much for joining me today on the History of Literature. It was a great pleasure. I really appreciate it. Okay, there we go. Wasn't that great? My thanks to our guest today for joining us. I learned a lot from Professor Samet, and I came away with an appreciation for her and her colleagues and for all the cadets who study at West Point. Being a soldier is not easy. It's a sacrifice in many, many ways. I'm not sure we always do enough for the individuals we ask to be soldiers and who we send off to face danger on our behalf, whether it's before they leave or after they come home. Our rickety democracy does not always make the best decisions. But I'm glad that we have people like Professor Samet applying their thoughtfulness and experience and expertise to the job of educating some of our finest military members. Her book is called Soldier's Heart, and it is worth reading both for her story, the story of her students, and the way that literature unites them both. For those of you who would like to help support the show, you can find us at patreon.com literature or buy some swag at historyofliterature.com shop. I'm on Twitter at TheJackWilson, J-A-C-K-E, Wilson. <laughs> We're putting together some great shows on the way. Mike Palindrome's joining us for a couple of them and our old friend, the novelist, Ronica Dar. 
So please subscribe and tell all your friends. Tell the whole cyber world. Why not? Make a barbaric yawp. They're online and stand breast to breast with the cosmos. All from the comfort of your little postage stamp corner of the world known as your Twitter feed, your blog, your Facebook page, or your Instagram account. Together, we can move the world, or at least get a handful of people to listen to a humble little podcast once in a while. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.